0: This is Betatron Investing in Asia, a podcast for people who want to invest in Asia's future. We're talking about Asia outside of China, where 44% of the world's population lives. They are young, they're digital natives, and their buying power is increasing by the day. I'm your host, Arshad Chowdhury, a partner with Betatron Venture Group based in Hong Kong. In this episode, we learn about sustainability investments in Asia, With its population density, massive urbanization, and already strained access to water and energy, Asia is particularly vulnerable to the early impacts of climate change. With more wealth in the hands of family offices today than perhaps at any other time in modern history, family offices, particularly in Asia, have an important role to play in funding the next generation of solutions to help mitigate and survive climate change. Here today is Katie Young, managing partner at Sustainable Finance Initiative, or SFI, where she works with a number of Hong Kong-based family offices to help craft and execute investment strategies related to sustainability. Thanks a lot for joining us today, Katie. Great to have you on. Hi, Ashard. Thanks for having me. We can't talk about climate change without talking about government policy. When I think about government policy related to climate change, I usually think about California or Canada or European nations leading the way. Is this also your perception, or do you see progressive policies coming out of Asia as well? And can you give some examples?
1: Sure. I think part of the reason why California, Canada, European stands out is they tend to dominate the headlines. What we've seen, however, is a bit of the opposite, uh, simply because we're paying more attention to what's happening in Asia. So closer to home in Hong Kong, we've just announced that uh, Hong Kong has committed to the net zero Carbon emissions by 2050. And in terms of regulation, we've seen green finance, climate risk reporting, and ESG disclosures all coming on board in the past six to 12 months. And there's a more coordinated effort across the regulatory bodies. There's a cross steering agency that was set up. So I wouldn't say that these policies are generally progressive in all aspects, but at least we're aligning with the international community. What I often find from a private investor's point of view is a gap between the policy narrative and the investor awareness. So I think what's needed to happen here is really to bridge that gap. And what we do at SFI is really represent and stay close to these policies, be part of industry working groups, and also give feedback to the consultations on some of the policies so that we're aware of these policies happening.
0: Can you elaborate, Katie, on the gap between where policy is and where you see private investors in terms of their approach to climate?
1: Policy and regulation is usually focused around risk and reporting and compliance, whereas for investors, what we're focused on as private investors that really want to create a change to climate and environment is beyond risk mitigation, it's actually seeing climate adaptation mitigation solutions. So the gap here is how do we move beyond what the policy requires companies to do and fund managers to invest in and setting a higher bar. So oftentimes I think the gap is understanding that regulation is great. However, investors need to also know that we could do more beyond regulation. So there are solutions and investable solutions to the market. So we need different sets of actors. And why investors need to pay attention to policy is because they would have implications in certain sectors. And to give you an example, SFC has come up with a consultation Uh, on climate risk disclosures. So while a lot of the big fund managers are already reporting against that, this would probably impact the smaller and medium-sized fund managers. And for families who are allocating capital into climate solutions, this would mean that the bar has instantly increased over time. So investors need to challenge these fund managers, whether they are paying close attention to these regulations. So that's kind of the dynamic and the gaps that we see that there needs to be a more coordinated narrative and efforts around that.
0: In terms of investor sentiment and appetite for investing in sustainability-related solutions, what are you seeing happening on the ground today in Hong Kong and then broadly across Asia?
1: For those that have already been practicing impact and sustainable investing, this basically is a validation. But what we've seen shifted since COVID is that there's a little bit of a FOMO effect. So more Asian investors are now probably feeling there's something that they're not doing enough or it's time to hop on the bandwagon. So there's a little bit of that dynamic shift. To share some examples of what we've seen amongst the family offices, are actually really encouraging. So I think in the last six to 12 months, we've seen families that are what we call going from the light green to deep green type of investors. So some have a great sense of urgency, where climate is the core focus of their entire portfolios, where they're dedicating all their capital into climate solutions and technology. We've seen others that have taken a portfolio approach where they've divested from fossil fuel stocks and reinvested them into renewable energy solutions, replacing low carbon strategies in the equity space, and also going into venture and technology solutions. So some of that motivation is frankly return driven as well. So riding on the tailwinds of policy and the appetite for alternatives and the opportunities they're seeing, we're seeing investments in the U.S. Climate Tech Fund. We've seen support around a Hong Kong venture battery power generator, a company for the construction industry. We've seen investments into aquaculture and also alternative protein. So in short, there's a lot of activity happening.
0: In my perspective, it seems like the narrative is shifting in terms of how people think about returns in the clean tech and sustainability space. My understanding was that in the past, these investments were thought of as concessionary capital. You might have to give up a little bit in terms of returns to see real positive impact. But is that still the case, or do you think people can see and expect real market returns with impact investing?
1: I would say that that perception is increasingly less of a concern. If investors and families really care about the environment and biodiversity, deforestation, natural capital, you simply need to relax those returns and lengthen your time horizon. So I personally feel like the narrative of giving up returns for higher environmental impact isn't really doing us justice nowadays because there's just so many variations around it and what is needed is really just learning by doing, seeing a lot more opportunity and testing each opportunity around your own risk return and impact framework.
0: It seems like it's easier for American or European startups to raise money in those markets when they're focused on sustainability. And it's harder for Asian-based companies to do so when they're reaching out to local investors. Is that still the case? And why might that be? Why does it seem like Asian investors have been a little bit slower to invest in sustainability-related companies when compared to the EU?
1: So first, if I may unpack the word sustainability a bit, since it's a big word, how yes, please usually see that is usually around ESG and impact. ESG tends to be more around risk mitigation, and impact is more an intentional impact, which could be positive or negative around social or environmental considerations. And what we end up using a lot is what the impact management framework adopts, which is classifying companies into the ABC framework. So are you a company that is simply avoiding harm? So business practices that doing the bare minimum? Are you a company that's a B company that's benefiting stakeholders or a C company that are contributing to solutions? So I think in the venture space and the startup space, a lot of the companies that we see are in the B or C category. I guess it's been easier for them to raise money overseas historically. I think there has been a lot more enabling factors, whether it's from top-down driven by legislation, institutional mandates, environmental awareness and grassroots action around advocacy, and more pragmatically data availability. So are companies reporting their carbon footprint or doing full cycle analysis? And so those information sources are actually really important for investors to ascertain. And finally, I do have to say, perhaps in Asia, the venture spin is younger. There's also a culture of a fear of failure. So a fear of investing in early stage companies that would not perform well. But I think that is changing based on the activities that we're seeing right now. And what we've seen at times is probably how companies are positioning themselves and language matters. Sometimes leading with, say, we're environmental, we're impactful, might still trigger some return concession type of thinking, whether it's rational or irrational. So I think a lot of companies that I found successful in the Asian region that have been able to raise investments to Asian investors are those that led with probably where the narrative still is at, which is around is return-driven, is riding on a great trend. We're seeing a big opportunity. And then you add on the sustainability factors. Of course, we're promoting that we should lead by impact and sustainability, but we think that we need to have more examples before that becomes a norm.
0: The fear of failure is super real. And I think wherever we're from, we all experience that to one degree or another, don't we? In terms of startups operating in the sustainability space in Asia or the ESG space, do you see changes in terms of deal flow, the number of companies you see seeking funding? Is it where it needs to be or do you think it needs to improve and how so?
1: In terms of deal flow relative to family offices that are making a certain allocation, right, to venture investing, I would say overall... It's okay in terms of volumes and quality, and we've seen that pick up over time. The sheer number of incubators and accelerators that we've seen in the space have definitely increased. So it's definitely getting more sophisticated. There are some that are university-backed, some are government-backed, corporate-backed. So from a sourcing perspective, we're seeing plenty, and also we're seeing with the sustainable and impact lens, these accelerators and incubators are coming to us with opportunities that they believe have a sustainable angle. So overall, I think it's more around the matching and finding the right fit for the investors rather than not seeing enough opportunities in the region.
0: Thinking from the perspective of a startup who's fundraising, it seems like finding and navigating the world of a family office is hard. It seems kind of opaque. They're not always listed. What would be your advice to up and coming founders who do want to raise money and do want to get their pitch decks into the hands of potential investors at family offices?
1: That's a very good question. I think historically, and maybe not just in Asia, it's, it's been a bit of a fragmented, opaque scene. And there's also tends to be more a inner network. So sharing internally among family office and knowing specific people tends to be the case. However, I think a way to do this is perhaps really just to join the likes of accelerators and incubators and Betatron and Angel Hub and all these that would have access to the right family offices. So instead of an entrepreneur going around and trying to knock on all these doors, there could be ways that are a little bit more systematic. I would also think about looking at later stage venture capital funds that you believe could fund you as you grow and looking at those LP mix. Where are these family offices placed and spot the ones that are already out there that are already making these investments? So that could be a reverse engineered way to get to the right family office. And lastly, of course, there's also SFI as a conduit. And we'd love to see more uh, entrepreneurs that are intentional and impactful in this space.
0: I like that. That's a good hack to try to understand which LPs are already active uh, investing in in venture capital funds. So uh, from the perspective of the investors, though, now, how do you cut through all the noise and discern what is an actual impactful investment and what might be just greenwashing?
1: increasingly I think as we see this topic blow up it will be more and more overwhelming and confusing. First of all while it could be confusing and overwhelming we advocate learning by doing. So start somewhere find a framework find a checklist around ESG or impact and apply it or else it would be a little bit of a analysis paralysis without a framework. When it comes to greenwashing and impact washing, I think the ones with blatant contradictions or just doing lip service, those are few and far between in our world. So oftentimes, it's the gray. So quite frankly, I think one person's greenwashing might be still okay for another investor. At SFI, what we do is we do have a handbook And a framework, and it's split across asset classes and things to look out for for investors as guiding points. So, for example, in the venture space for startups, what we want to do is a quick five question filter to see if this startup is a yes no across the impact. Does it have impact potential? Is there impact DNA within the entrepreneur? Are there rail guards? Is the business strategy itself? tied to an impact outcome. And so it's not a side event. So there are things like this that would be helpful and we offer. And last but not least is the rail guard. So looking out for unintended consequences and mission drift. So what is it in this company that might lead it to not stick to its mission, not be seen as green? Are there unintended consequences that the company is not thinking about? This type of framing at times also helps us sanity check whether that's the right opportunity. So we've started sharing that framework and also uh, acting as a sounding board consulting with investors who are interested to use this framework. And also we've shared our framework with some of the entrepreneurs that our SFI sponsors have invested in. So we've, we would do an impact assessment on a venture company. And then we would share that impact assessment back to the entrepreneur so they know exactly what the investors think, where they fall short of, what they're doing well. So that type of dialogue, I believe, also is necessary to put some meat around the bones.
0: That sounds really helpful for an entrepreneur who's trying to raise capital and present themselves as an impact investment And I'm sure a lot of people would benefit from seeing that. But just digging in a little further into trying to comply with the many potential standards out there, I know there's an alphabet soup of ESG standards coming from the UN and other bodies. Do you have any advice for both entrepreneurs and investors as to which of all the many frameworks we might look to as a North Star for best practices or to guide our measurements of impact?
1: yes there are a lot of a lot of standards out there i think for earlier stage companies i would really encourage keep it simple don't overdo it stick with international ones that are most widely recognized so the ones that i've mentioned like the impact management framework iris having some kpis in place perhaps at this stage is all you need the important part is doing the thinking and putting it down in a coherent piece of paper at the early stages, I think impact investors are not looking for the perfect answer. The expectation should not be what we look for in, say, like a listed company per se. So there are organizations out there, and including SFI, that could guide some of these entrepreneurs in terms of how they want to articulate that. And we've done that even with social enterprises in Hong Kong during COVID, uh, applying the impact framework so they could articulate what impact means to them and what are the simple KPIs that they could use. So uh, one resources go on our website. There's a piece that we've talked about it and a look at international standards such as impact management framework and IRIS.
0: We can definitely add a link to these resources in the show notes accompanying the podcast description. You see quite a few startups in the sustainability space, but what opportunities around sustainability should startups address, but maybe they're not yet addressing? What would you like to see more of?
1: Within the climate space, we have seen a lot of strategies and technologies around climate mitigation, but not as much around climate adaptation. Only 5% of capital or solutions are centered around adaptation. So that's an area. Within food and ag, we've seen a lot in the alternative protein space, more product-oriented. But upstream, things that are around consolidating and supporting efficiency, supporting the smallholder farmers, the packaging, all that the upstream solutions we find are growing overseas. And in in Asia, I think it's just beginning. And we've seen accelerators, incubators that are just focused around that. And, And the same applies to sustainable fashion and textiles. We've seen a lot of downstream opportunities that are Centered around the consumer experience, the retail experience, kind of circular economy. Upstream examples around like technology and materials, those are the ones and also efficiency around production. Those are the ones that we think there's more space for uh, entrepreneurs to step into. The second dimension to this is no matter which industry you're in, I would encourage you to dig deeper in terms of business practice around sustainability. Doing so, I think, is a source of risk mitigation to investors, but also resilience. So as you dig deeper around how you conduct your business in a sustainable manner, whether it's environmental footprint, source of cost savings, how you treat your employees, we found that the companies that have dug deeper and have those policies in place are more resilient. And and during COVID, they've been able to adapt much quicker. This point is sector agnostic but we do see that as an opportunity as well.
0: I think around adaptation, it seems like sometimes an obvious solution, right? To be more adaptive, whether you have physical assets or non-physical assets to changes in both the economy, in the environment, weather, and so on. It seems very clear, but it's hard for businesses to sometimes make the investment because what they're doing is reducing the potential loss rather than increasing the potential market share or increasing their revenues, and it's just harder to sell that, I guess, internally sometimes. Looking ahead, what are you most excited about in terms of sustainability-related investments?
1: So overall, I'm very excited about the, the convergence that I'm starting to see. So five to 10 years ago, people weren't really talking to each other, or it was more siloed actors. So policymakers would be policymakers, the corporates, the private investors, the foundations, philanthropy. What I'm excited about is I'm seeing more melded conversations happening. And in terms of investors, I'm seeing the capital allocation considerations are moving beyond risk return, right? Impact is added to it. So similar to what's happening in the real world, internally, the mental frameworks are also converging. The capital allocation considerations are also converging. So that's what excites me. The other piece is tech entrepreneurs that are now in, say, Southeast Asia and the Asian region that are increasingly a little bit more overt around what impact is. In the past, I think there would be very successful entrepreneurs that deliberately completely stay out of that impact context and that wording and that narrative because they think it just puts them in a box, right? And it hurts them in fundraising. Now I'm seeing that begin to shift as well as we work with some tech entrepreneurs in the region and we see them grow and some are further along getting into unicorn and pre-ipo stage they are embracing that impact framework and they are applying impact uh, reporting to their strategies and that's what excites me and last piece is for family offices and principals i do think i've come across a few of them that are starting to ask the hard questions and really taking a step back to think about you know, what am I investing into what change do I want to see and also having cross-generational conversations with the next generation so that to me is very encouraging and very thoughtful and to me getting those puzzle pieces figured out would make the execution of expressing sustainability and impact in your investments much more coherent so that potential I think I see happening in the next couple of years.
0: Well, thank you so much, Katie. This has been a really informative session. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today and good luck on finding and funding the next generation of great sustainability-related startups.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening today. If you want to know more about Betatron, where we invest in fast-growing B2B startups throughout Asia, visit our website at betatron.co. I'm your host, Arshad Chowdhury. Find me on Twitter at ArshadGC, where I'd love to hear your ideas about guests and topics related to investing in Asia.